if you would, please join with me in turning to Matthew chapter 17. And tonight we are looking at verses 14 through 23. Matthew chapter 17, beginning with the 14th verse. The Word of God says this, They came to the crowd. A man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, O you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him. And the demon came out of him. And the boy was cured at once. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith... The size of a mustard seed. You will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Lord, would you now meet with us as we meet around your word? Would you accomplish in this next hour that which will be revealed as good fruit? Would you save for salvation is necessary. Would you allow this sermon to contribute to the ongoing sanctification of your children? Would you challenge us, Lord, and convict us and move us to the point of decision where our sins are to be forsaken? And would you encourage the downtrodden, the discouraged? You know, Lord, every single life, you know, every need represented in this room and every person listening to me. And I thank you that you care and that your word is sufficient for such a thing and that, Lord, in Christ we have sufficiency for everything that pertains to life and godliness. We look to you and we will thank you for what you do as your word goes forth. Help me, Lord, to be clear. Help me to remember the things you've taught me. Help us to listen with genuine intention to receive from your hand tonight. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord, when He saved you, gave you a glimpse of the outrageous nature of your sins. This is something you can know about every genuine child of God. We live our lives now, and this has been given to us through salvation. We live our lives now with an awareness of God but we also live our lives with an awareness of sin. 
There was a sense in which in our lost condition we were aware of sin. This is why lost people are continually trying to cover their eyes and cover their ears when it comes to the revelation of God that would expose them and call for their repentance. There was a running from God that testified to our knowledge of our sinfulness. But when the Lord saved us, it was something different. It was not something that we gritted our teeth about. It was not something that we fought. It was not something that we denied. The knowledge of our sin broke our hearts. There was a sadness. There was a softness. There was a grief. There was a desire to be forgiven. There was a desire to be free. It's amazing, though, even though the Lord has saved us and we live our lives with that awareness of sin from time to time, I'm sure you share this experience from time to time. It's like he takes another level off. He takes me a level deeper into an awareness of the enormity of my sin. Maybe I'm thinking about something in the past that I now regret, some way I've treated a person or something I wish I would have done. And And what happened is not small in my eyes. I get a taste. I get a glimpse of what it really is that I have done. Sin is outrageous. Do you know that? Sin is enormous. It's not small. If you want to know about the outrageous nature of sin, just remember its penalty. The penalty of sin testifies to the enormity of sin. The penalty of sin is death. Those things that you and I commit, if not for the blood of Jesus, it would mean the death penalty. And not just any kind of death, but an everlasting death. What does your sin deserve? My sin. It deserves everlasting wrath. This is why Jesus had to die to deliver us from what our sins deserve. Our sin is always outrageous in two directions. Our sins are outrageous because they are against the authority of an almighty and holy king. It's an attack on the holiness of God. It's an attack on the honor of God. It's an attack on the authority of God. But at the same time, our sins are outrageous because they're always committed in the face of mercy and love and kindness and patience. We sin against an astoundingly patient king. He is altogether holy and all-powerful, and yet astoundingly gracious and patient and kind. So that our sins represent dishonor and disregard. Dishonor with respect to God's authority, disregard with respect to God's kindness. It's like it doesn't matter. We sin against the law of God and we sin against the love of God. We are both unholy and ungrateful at the same time. If God should give the sinner what he or she deserves at this very moment, they would be dropped into hell, and yet they are not, and still live defiantly toward the very God who holds their everlasting destiny, their next breath in his hand, and allows them to live. As I read our verses for tonight, that stands out. These two aspects of sin and the enormity of it all 
In fact, five things are unmistakably on display in our verses as Jesus continues his march toward Jerusalem, toward his death on the cross. These five things stand out in our verses. Let me just mention them. You'll see them sort of you know, woven into the fabric of the narrative. But all five are present. You see persistent mercy. Jesus continues to be merciful. Even when he knows a holy aggravation with man's sinfulness, with his perversion and his unbelief, even then Christ says, bring him to me. And he's merciful. You see persistent unbelief. You see persistent perversion. You have Christ persisting in warnings. How long will I be with you? You have persistent promise as he speaks about his death and his resurrection. He's not going to die a victim. He dies on purpose, and he's going to be raised a victor, a savior, a king. And through it all, he persists in preparing his men for what they're going to face in the days following his resurrection and his ascension. He prepares them for their future ministry. And what all of it underscores is that Jesus is gracious. But His graciousness represents not just hope for mankind, His graciousness represents responsibility for mankind. The one who can trample on the blood of Jesus. What can they expect? When life has been offered, when forgiveness has been offered at the cost of the very life of the Son of God, and you trample on it, what kind of responsibility is that? So Jesus is good holy, kind, gracious, yet he is hated and will be killed. And so as we look at these verses, I think about the fact that he is hated without a cause, and that is all over this text. And yet he will conquer through it. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. What men mean for evil, God means for good. So tonight we think about these things. They're displayed in multiple ways through the five movements in the narrative. So we're going to organize our study tonight around these five movements that you see in the narrative. I'll mention them as we come to them. The first thing you see is a severe problem. Verses 14 through 16, a severe problem. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. Now, it's been observed by more than one student of the Bible that there's something striking about the order of these events. We go from the mountaintop of a glimpse of Christ's kingdom glory down to the bottom of the mountain, and we meet with the pain of man's current condition. From the realm of heaven's sweetness to the realm of Satan's torments. From a disciple's sense of wonder where if he could have, he would have stayed there forever. Can I just construct three booths here? Lord, this is good. It's good for us to be here down to a father's sense of desperation in a realm that we could wish was already past. 
as Jesus comes down from the mountain with these three disciples, he meets with a commotion. Meets with a crowd. Mark tells us there's a commotion going on. There's been an argument going on. Mark 9, 14, and when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, the specifics of the argument are not revealed in Scripture, but at least some element of it involved the need that is then brought to Jesus, this boy, the father, concerned about his son. Just you know, for a moment, I don't know this for certain, but just for a moment, sort of thinking about the context and functioning like an investigator, I think what the argument might have involved is the fact that those disciples who were left down at the bottom of the mountain, as they're brought this need and they are not able to meet the need, they're not able to help the Father, perhaps the scribes seize upon that and this becomes yet one more evidence in their way of thinking that Jesus and his disciples are not legitimate. What does this say about your master? What does this say about you, that you can't help this situation? I don't know that for sure, but what I do know is there's an argument with the scribes. And out of this argument comes this man, falls on his knees before Jesus, pleads for his son. Notice that the man addresses Jesus with respect, calls him Lord. It may have been even more than that. There may have been an element of faith involved here. He asks for help. And the reason why I say there may be an element of faith, because in verse 15, he makes clear that he recognizes that what he desires and needs is mercy. Lord, have mercy on my son. Seems absolutely convinced that Jesus is able to help. In fact, another account of this same incident, this is the man who said, Jesus says, if you can, what do you mean if you can? And the man says, Lord, I believe, please help my unbelief. So there is faith here. The man is burdened because his son is tormented. He has seizures and suffers terribly. You see a little bit of the mysticism of the pagan world because the word for seizures is literally moonstruck believing that somehow the moon affected these sorts of behaviors. You know, you still see a tie to that in our language because sometimes a crazy person is referred to as a lunatic. We're told this is the man's only child, Luke 9, 38. Behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. The terrible nature of his suffering is described by the Father. He often falls into the fire, often into the water. If you think about how often in this day and age people were warming themselves by fires, the kind of anxiety this Father must have had because he says he often does this. This is not a one-time experience. This has happened again and again and again where his son experiences a seizure and ends up in very dangerous situations. Mark 9.18 says, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Mark also tells us the boy could not speak, could not hear. Mark 9.25, when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. 
How long has the father who loves his son endured this kind of anguish? Well, Mark 9.21 says, And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. So from the time that he's a little boy, he's been experiencing these sorts of seizures. He knows that his son is demonized. The father knows the problem has a spiritual source. To this day, we live in a world that wants to think that every problem is physical. And there are physical problems. And you would be just as wrong to think that every problem is spiritual. There are physical problems. But sometimes behind those things that this world wants to label as physical, there's something more going on than just physical. And it was the case with this boy, Mark 9.17. And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. The man sought help from the Lord's disciples, but the son was not helped. They tried to cast the demon out. How do we know that they tried? Well, because they asked Jesus why it didn't work. Verse 19, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So they tried. They couldn't do it. Eventually, they reach a point where they basically have to say to the Father, we can't help you. And so Jesus descends the mountain with the three disciples who witnessed this glorious realm come down to a realm where the pain and suffering of mankind is so on display, and there's commotion that has broken out. There's an argument that has ensued, and it's between the scribes and the disciples of Jesus are involved, and this man emerges out of the crowd and asks Jesus for mercy. There's a severe problem, which leads second to a strange rebuke. Verse 17, and the Lord answered and said, Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. This is not what we expect from Jesus, is it? I mean, this is not how he normally responds. I don't think it's wrong to describe what we read here as holy frustration. Or we could perhaps better describe it as grief. He is grieved. What is it that has grieved him? He tells us. What grieves him, verse 17, is unbelief and perversion. You unbelieving and perverse generation. It is a belief problem that then exhibits itself in a behavior problem. When you don't think right, you don't choose right. When your faith is corrupt, then your course is crooked. They have a faith problem. Therefore, they have a behavior problem. And he says that what grieves him characterizes the entire generation. Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation. And what characterized their generation characterizes our generation, has characterized every generation to one degree or another since the fall. Here is the Holy Son of God living in a sinful world, made what it is by virtue of the curse because man disobeyed God. And he is grieved at what he's surrounded by and dealing with every day. But don't forget the occasion for this grief. What has occasioned it 
are his own disciples. This is what has set this off. The fact that the man has taken his son to Christ's men and they were not able to help him. What grieves Jesus are his own people. The disciples have failed in this situation. Don't miss it. When they ask why they were not able to cast the demon out, Jesus does not say, because this one was too strong. You were right. There was nothing you could do. We'll see in a moment. He attributes it to their small faith, their little faith. The unbelief of the generation was on display, in this case, in his own men. Therefore, the misguided responses to God are on display in this situation in His own men. Never forget that nothing would disappoint the Lord more than for His people to reflect the same kind of unbelief and perversion of the world around them. Why would Jesus be grieved by this? Let's remind ourselves of something that goes back to Matthew chapter 10. Don't forget that Jesus gave His disciples authority to do this. Matthew 10, verse 5, these 12 Jesus sent out instructing them. So he gives them instruction. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. He not only gave them instruction to do this, He gave them authority to do this. They go out in His name. They go out by His permission and tasking of them. And not only did they go out, they actually saw it happen. I mean, they had experience with this. They had experienced the Lord's power and authority on display in and through their lives. Luke chapter 10, verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority. Tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So he gave them instruction to cast out demons. He gave them authority to cast out demons. He gave them proof that they could cast out demons. So why were they not able to do it in this case? And both with his disciples and with the world at large, Jesus gives voice in this grief to the great privilege they were experiencing. Oh, you unbelieving and perverse generation, how long... Shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Shall I endure this? How long? Right now, when their belief isn't right, and therefore their behavior hasn't been right, what do they do? They run to Jesus in person. It won't always be like this. And what does Jesus do when their thinking has been wrong and their behaviors have been wrong? He fixes it. He takes care of it. He endures. He is patient. And in his words, he's saying, you have to be learning these lessons because the day will come when this version of the schoolhouse will close. What a tremendous 
privilege you have. What a tremendous opportunity is yours. How long will you have this? And in terms of the world, how long will you have to see things like this and be convinced that He really is the Messiah? How many signs do you need? How many miracles do you have to witness? How long will Jesus continue to give the light of the truth about His person and His mission right in the face of people who say, show us a sign after He's opened the eyes of a blind man or after He's delivered a boy of a demon or after He's raised someone from the dead and they say, we need more evidence. How long? R.T. France put it well. He said, in their failure to trust God in this practical test, they are typical of the attitude of Jesus' contemporaries as a whole, even within the disciple group, the unbelief of this generation is reflected. It's a good thing for us to consider, isn't it? In this disciple group, is the unbelief of this generation reflected? So you have a severe problem and you have a strange rebuke. Third, Notice the supernatural deliverance, verse 18. Then Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Jesus says, bring him here to me. Rebukes the demon, it goes immediately. Literally, it means in that hour. But it says, the boy was cured at once. From that hour, he was well. Once more, the Lord of glory is displayed before the eyes of an unbelieving and perverse generation. His divine knowledge is on display. He knows exactly what is wrong with the boy. His divine authority is on display. The demon has to obey him. His divine power is on display. The boy is made completely well in an instant. His divine mercy is on display because he provides the help that needy people seek. All of them are without excuse when it comes to recognizing who He is. The grace of God makes them responsible. In fact, Luke records their response this way, Luke 9, 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. I mean, though Jesus has done things like this so many times, yet every time it occurs, men are overwhelmed in the presence of it. We have witnessed the majesty of God. Which brings us to the fourth thing we see, and that is a shepherd's lesson. Once again, we move from the public to the private. Mark tells us they entered a house before this conversation took place. Verse 19, then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you may have a note there, you have the New American Standard of the LSV. ESV does a better job with this. You can translate that with the word as. If you have faith as a mustard seed, and I'm going to talk about why that's significant in a moment, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. He's teaching them important lessons, even through their failure. Now, to their credit... They want to learn, don't they? I mean, they're the ones who ask the question about their failure. 
Why were we not able to cast the demon out? He gives them this answer. The problem is your little faith. He doesn't say they're without faith. They have little faith. That's interesting. What is little faith? Do we struggle with little faith? Are we at times grieving our God with our little faith? What is little faith? When you search on this phrase, you find there are five times in the gospel accounts where the Lord is using this kind of language. Small variation in the way he says it, but it's the same thing. Five times he identifies the small faith of people who are following him. Listen to these five texts. I'm going to categorize them. Notice what they deal with. First of all, disciples anxious about the necessities of life. What you're going to wear, where you're going to live, what you're going to eat, how you're going to exist. Matthew 6.30, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Luke 12.28 repeats that. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will He clothe you, O you of little faith? So little faith on display in disciples who are anxious about how they're going to make it. Disciples anxious about their safety. You have the Lord's disciples in a boat with Him on the sea when a storm blows up. Matthew 8, 24, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. A man walking on water in response to his Lord's walking on water and calling him out to join him on the water. He goes for a little bit. He's making good progress until his little faith kicks in. Matthew 14, 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? As he lifts him up as Peter is sinking down under the waves. Oh, you have little faith, why did you doubt? The disciples, we saw this recently, Matthew 16, the disciples afraid because they forgot the bread. They have witnessed Jesus feed multitudes with nothing, basically. A creation miracle on two occasions. And they're afraid because they forgot to bring enough bread. Matthew 16, verse 8, But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Now ask yourself, what do you see in each of those Five categories. What you see is faith that fails at the point of testing. It doesn't persist in the face of what it has not yet seen. The bank account is full. Thank you, Lord, that you take care of us. But let the bank account get slim, and we're full of anxiety. God has met our needs so many times, and we know from His Word that we are much more valuable than the birds of the air that He takes care of and the grass of the field that He clothes, and yet meet with a need, and we haven't seen it met yet. We don't have it yet in hand, and our faith gives way to anxiety. 
we feel safe when the sea is calm and the sun is shining and the Lord's awake and we're having a conversation. But let a storm blow up and he's asleep. And somehow we forget who's in the boat with us. And we act as if our safety is in our own care. If we don't take care of ourselves, no one will. The Lord walking on the water before my very eyes, and though he's called me out onto the water to be with him, even though I've already walked a portion of the way to him, when I see the elements around me, I am able to forget something that is just, it defies the imagination. It is supernatural without debate, and yet I can forget it all in a moment when I see the waves and I see the wind, and I recognize I could drown. When my faith must operate in the realm of what I've not yet received, what I've not yet seen, where I've not yet arrived, something outside my own capacity. I can't walk on the water on my own. I can't feed myself on my own. I can't protect my life in a storm on my own. When I'm outside my capacity, now I don't trust Him. I'm afraid. It is a faith that doesn't persist through the test. It's a faith that fails when it's tested. These men tried to cast out the demon. At some point, it had to seem to them like it just wasn't going to happen. And instead of persisting, knowing the instruction they had been given, knowing the authority they had been given, remembering the proof they had already seen that the demons are subject to them in the name of Jesus, instead of persisting, as we'll see in a moment, and praying, one of the ways that we persist in faith, one of the evidences that our faith is growing, is we seek the Lord on the basis of what He has told us, what He's promised to us. But instead of persisting in prayer, they give up. This is why the Lord is grieved, and that's what little faith looks like. What is the answer for little faith? What is the answer for it? Verse 20, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed. I think that's important. He's just told them the reason they couldn't cast the demon out is because they have little faith. Now he'd be talking about the smallness of the mustard seed? I don't think that's what he's saying. You had little faith, but you know what? Even little faith can move mountains. By the way, when he's talking about mountains, he's not talking in literal terms. He's teaching them. He's speaking in figurative terms. A great obstacle, a great test, something that really stresses you. If your faith is like a mustard seed, you'll learn what it is to walk through those situations. Well, what do we know about the mustard seed? It starts out small, but what happens? It grows. It actually produces something large. He's not saying what you need is little faith. He's saying you need faith that grows. John MacArthur captured this. Listen to what he writes. Jesus seems to contradict himself, first rebuking the disciples for having small faith and then telling them that even the smallest faith can move mountains. But as he made clear in the parable of the mustard seed, the seed does not represent littleness as such, but rather littleness that grows into greatness. When it is full grown, he explained, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. Small faith can accomplish great things only if, like a mustard seed, it grows into something greater than it is. Only when small faith grows into great faith can it move a mountain. Mustard seed faith is persistent faith. 
It continues to grow and it becomes productive because it never gives up. It is the sword of faith exercised by the man who kept knocking on his neighbor's door late at night until he got a response. I tell you, Jesus said that even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. Luke 11, verse 8. Jesus also illustrated mustard seed faith in the parable of the oppressed widow, a parable he gave specifically to show that at all times, the disciples ought to pray and not to lose heart. Luke 18, verse 1. When the widow would not take no for an answer, the godless and different judge finally gave her legal protection, lest, he said, by continually coming, she wear me out. Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Jesus went on to explain, Now shall not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them speedily. What do you do when your faith is growing? You don't stop. You go on believing the Lord. You're like what this man says in one of the other accounts of it. Lord, I believe. Please help my unbelief. Here's a man who's already seen his son unable to be delivered, but he doesn't stop, does he? He fights through that crowd and he meets the Lord himself. If your hapless disciples can't help me, you can. Would you help me? And he finds the help that he desires. You'll notice the brackets in verse 21. It's not original. But if you wonder how a copyist might have imported it through the years so that it shows up in manuscripts, well, the reason why is there's something similar to it in Mark 9.28. I mean, what really was said by Jesus, Mark gives us in Mark 9.28, and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So what was on display in their little faith was their prayerlessness. This one doesn't come out unless you pray and you persist in prayer. Remember again, the disciples had instruction to do this. They had authority to do this. They had confirmation through past experiences that they could do this. But instead of persisting in prayer, believing what their Lord had told them, they gave up. We can't do anything for you. And that grieved Jesus. They were not learning the lessons. Do you give up? Where you ought to be persisting? Do you find yourself prayerless where you ought to be praying? We all know, I don't have to tell this church, how that truth gets twisted in the mouths of false teachers. How it has been used to turn into a name it and claim it. And now you're going to pray and believe and hold on to things that God never promised you in His Word. That is not the situation we have in our text. These men were given a task. They didn't believe their Lord. You and I are called to persist in faith where we know what God has told us. And that means we continue to pray when it seems like it's not going to be true. And so you think about the ways the Lord takes care of you materially, just like He promises He will. Do you lose heart or do you persist in believing Him and you pray? But can I say this, even where you don't have specific promises, and you should know you don't have specific promises, there's still a persistence of faith that can belong to the principles. 
Let me explain. I have family members who don't know Jesus. Just like you, we have a large family here and other parts in the country. Some of them don't know Christ. I do not have a promise the Lord will save them. I do not. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul giving counsel to a woman who has an unbelieving husband and wants to leave her and all the rest. He says, how do you know, O wife, whether you'll save your husband? There is no guarantee. But what I do know from Scripture is that God saves sinners. I know this personally as well as biblically. And I know from Scripture that I'm commanded, 1 Timothy 2, to engage in evangelistic prayer. It's good. It's right to pray for the salvation of people. And I know from Scripture that persistent prayer matters. And I know that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man matters. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. I know prayer matters. I know that God uses it. I know that it's powerful. So I will pray for my lost family members until they come to Christ or until I go to Christ. Until my life is over, there will be at least one person on this planet lifting their name before the throne of God's almighty grace, asking him to save them. I will not, by the grace of God, stop. That's not based on a promise, but it is based on a principle. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will be merciful and grant what I'm asking for. Anybody here have someone you've prayed for for years, and then the Lord saves them? Which leads to the last thing we see, and that's verses 22 and 23, a sad preparation. And this is why I started like I did to talk about hated without a cause. Because looking at all the accounts of this incident, these two verses are meant to say something to us by where they are placed. The fact that they're included, it's like a darkness held right up against the light to make an impression on us. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. The crowds marveled at the majesty of God, but they were still ignorant. Jesus wants his disciples to recognize that, that their marveling did not represent, oh, this is all going to turn out in the end. Luke 9, 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Jesus preparing his men for the fact that he will die. Here is the perfect Savior, a merciful shepherd, a long-suffering, holy, divine servant who continues to teach his men when they fall on their face and picks up the pieces that they make a mess of and helps humanity in its misery and does so mercifully. And yet they're still going to kill him. They hate him for no good reason. The shepherd is almighty. He is trustworthy. He is patient. He is merciful. 
is perfectly good, and yet they're going to kill him. And yet all of it is by design. That's his goodness too. Because through it, he's going to save. This is how he's going to save us. This is what Peter declared on the day of Pentecost. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan of God. You have killed with wicked hands. Both are true. God's everlasting plan worked out through the wickedness of the hands of sinful men so that our sins are not only against the law of God, but against the love of God. Not only an attack on His honor, but a disregarding of His goodness. How enormous are our sins when we recognize that every sin we've ever committed not only transgressed the law of an altogether holy king, but threw in this face his patience and kindness and mercy and love to us. Have you ever seen the enormity of what it is you're doing so that you would repent and turn to the one who came into the world to save sinners, who patiently instructs us as his disciples even when we fail, who doesn't let us go even when our faith is little, And would you ask him, like this man did, to help your unbelief so that your faith is as a mustard seed and it grows so that we might live a life that honors the one and doesn't grieve the one who has taught us so well. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your patience with us for making us your own, for forgiving us of our sins that are enormous, that are outrageous. Forgive us that our sins are so often small in our sight. Forgive us when we spend our time focused on what is done to us instead of what we are doing toward you and toward others. Save us from the narcissistic, self-centered, self-consumed, life that characterizes an unbelieving and perverse generation. And teach us what it is to be thankful and to strive for holiness in all of our ways, how we think, how we feel, how we respond, how we speak, how we behave. Grant us straight faith that leads to straight paths. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our shepherd. Thank you, Holy Father, for giving us your Son. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are with us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.